0: Hello. Welcome back to the Retro Horror Academy. My name is Daniel Richardson. And tonight we're going to be talking about the year in horror, 1936. Guys, it finally happened. The censors won. Horror... Officially dies this year. Don't worry, because like with anything else in horror, or horror related, you can't kill it. It's going to come back. But unfortunately, 1936 is the last year for a couple years that we have anything horror related. Uh, Dracula's Daughter is actually the last major horror film to be released, and uh, Before, you know, this cycle of horror films kind of runs its course. You want to call it the Golden Age? You can. The Golden Age of Horror runs its course. And, uh, yeah, we're kind of without horror for a couple years. Uh, But, let's get into it. Uh, You know what we do on this show? We got some uh, Horror Hall of Fame inductees. And uh, we got nine films to uh, rank, I guess. So, uh, let's just get into it, shall we? So... Uh, following the trend that we've been doing for the past couple years on this thing, well, past couple shows, we're covering years, uh, anyways, uh, we're gonna go ahead and induct two, uh, people into the Horror Hall of Fame, uh, so, the first person we're going to induct is Washington Irving, uh, author, biographer, uh, he was also like a, uh, ambassador for uh, Spain, actually, which is kind of crazy. But, uh, anyways, uh, and he, you know, like I said, biographer, he did biographies of uh, George Washington, Christopher Columbus, among others. But, us horror fans, we know him best as the author of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which led to the movie The Headless Horseman. Uh, of course, there would be other things, you know, uh, adaptations as time will pass. But uh, at this point in history, that's what he's known for. But guess what? That's all you need. Yeah, you do the Headless Horseman, guess what? You're, you're in the hall. So, uh, Washington Irving, welcome to the uh, Horror Hall of Fame. Well deserved. Take your seat, sir. Uh, the next person, see if I get this name right without butchering it too much, uh, Werner Krauss. Krauss. German actor, uh, best known in the world of horror as uh, Dr. Calgary, in the cabinet of Dr. Dr. Calgary. Uh, he was also in Waxworks and The Student of Prague. Always playing a sinister type character. Uh, yeah. Again, in these early days of horror, you know. Uh, and this is kind of before Lon Chaney really burst onto the scene. Uh, yeah, he was the guy in Germany that was just dominating these horror roles. These sinister roles. So, uh, yeah. Werner Cross. Welcome to the Horror Hall of Fame. So, let's get into it, guys. We have nine horror films that we're going to rank. Uh, So, at number nine, El Barro Macabro. This is a Mexican film, also known as The Macabre Trunk. Uh, This is about a a mad scientist who, uh, you know, his wife is dying, and so in order to try to help her illness, uh, he's killing young women and then taking their blood and pumping them into his wife to try to save her. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, uh, this was the year of, uh, I mean, we've been in it for a while now, I know it's, you know, horror goes in cycles, but we're definitely in the era of mad scientists, but this doesn't end just now, like, it, we, we go through the 40s up to the 50s and beyond, but, you know, I kind of feel like these next two decades are just gonna be mad scientists crazy, and I don't know, I kind of feel like it, it runs its course, uh, for me personally anyways, I feel like, what do you do after Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein? Like at that point, we've already seen the tropes. You know, we know the formula. Uh, And I'm not saying there won't be good ones. In fact, even on this list, because we got several uh, Mad Scientist stories uh, on this list this year, and we got some really good ones. Uh, I'm just saying, what else can you really do at this point? Besides the point, let's get on to this movie right here. Uh, This one felt very standard. Um, I don't know. Uh, kind of a, I guess the way the formula goes, this one though, it, it felt kind of rushed, like they were kind of rushing through the story. I mean, it's a, it's a short film. It's only an hour and 20 minutes or something, but it's like, they were just kind of rambling this thing together and don't really get any steam going until like the last part of it, which seemed to also be kind of a theme throughout this uh, year in horror. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to really say about this one. I didn't really care for it. And that's kind of a shame, because we've had a, a handful of other uh, Mexican horror films. The Oh, the, the Convent. I forget what the full title of it was, because it had several titles. But, like, The Haunted Convent, or El something Conventio, or whatever the hell that one was called. I really enjoyed it. Uh, oh, El, Fa- or El Fantasmo uh, del Covento. Yes, I love The Phantom of the Convent. I love that one. I thought that was honestly one of my favorite movies that we've done here. Uh, and there's been a, you know, a couple of you know other Mexican horror films from this era that I've really enjoyed. This is the first one that I felt was kind of a miss. Uh, and again, it just felt very generic and by the numbers. And I think that's really what kind of... Because whereas the other ones... Maybe watching them from today's perspective, you're like, "Oh yeah, these tropes, we've you know, this is standard stuff." But it's like it was fresh back then. This one didn't even feel fresh. Like we've already seen this movie play out numerous times. So I don't know. I'm kind of yearning for the uh, haunted house where it turns out to be a person. You know, the old Scooby Doo uh, haunted house type movies because that was kind of the rage in the late 20s there. And now it's like, oh, now we're all about mad science and. I don't know. Uh, this has a 5.7 on IMDb, and, uh, yeah, that feels a little high if you ask me, but that's just my opinion. Uh, so yeah, number nine, Burro Macabro, if I'm even pronouncing that right. Number eight, we have, see if I can get this one, Farman Maria. Uh, this is a German film, uh, it's about this, uh, young girl who, uh, Kind of goes into a small town, a small village, and uh, becomes the Ferryman, which is what uh, Farman is translated to. Ferryman Maria. Uh, And anyways, it ends with her basically uh, fighting death to try to save the man she loves. Uh, This, you know, very similar to uh, Destiny. uh, The uh, F.W. Maroon. I'm horrible with names, guys. I'm sorry. Manu. The guy who did Nosferatu, he also did Destiny, and they had a very similar uh, story in that one as well, uh, about, you know, someone trying to protect their loved ones from death, you know, uh, and so, you know, must be a, a German thing, I guess, uh, anyways, um, this movie would later get remade, uh, of course, this one was more gothic horror, uh, that German expressionistic, you know, type look, uh, Whereas the remake, which was 1945, I believe, is uh, Stranglers on the Swamp or Strangler of the Swamp or something like that. But uh, they definitely went more horror with that one, whereas this one was more atmosphere, I guess, you know, you would say. Um, Really, the only other note as far as production goes on this movie was, uh, or anything of note, I guess I should say, was this was the last movie that was made... um, in Germany, before the Nazi regime kind of took over the film industry as well. Uh, in fact, the uh, director, a guy named uh, Frank Wisbar, I think is that how you pronounce his name. Uh, this guy would actually flee uh, from Germany uh, shortly after making this movie uh, to get away from the you know the Nazi power, you know, stranglehold they had over there. Um, I like this movie. I actually uh, this is a movie I really kind of got into. Uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the others, uh, not necessarily with the twist or anything like that. You know, not you know, no one's dead or anything like that, and they don't realize it. I just mean like that isolation, and you don't quite know what the fuck's going on on the outside. Um, there's you know when uh, the man she falls in love with, because again, you know she uh, we see early on. Spoilers alert! This is from nineteen fucking thirty six. So you should have already seen it, uh, or should go out of your way to see these before you know. Uh, You listen to this podcast. But anyways, in the very beginning, uh, you know, we we get the first uh, ferryman and we see Death show up and, you know, capture, you know, him. His soul, or whatever you want to call it. And so when this guy, uh, the soldier shows up and goes into there, into the, you know, the ferryman's house, which is now Maria's house, and we see Death coming, you know, he's freaking out. We don't quite know what's going on on the outside. And I I just instantly just thought of, you know, not only do I think of, you know, Destiny, but I also thought of the others. Had that kind of a vibe. Uh, I really dug it. Like I said, uh, you know, horror, bit of a stretch, I guess. I mean, it, it is supernatural. It definitely has more of like a love story drama kind of vibe to it, but still solid nonetheless. And again, I mean, you do got death trying to Capture her soul, and she's trying to stand in the way of it. But a really you know, well-told story. I really dug it. Uh, yeah, uh, highly recommend it. Uh, it's got a 7.0 on uh, IMDb. Now, that, that seems about right. So, anyways, number 8, Froman uh, Maria. Sorry, just took a drink. Alright, so now we move on to number 7. And this is The Man Who Changed His Mind. This is a a British film. Uh, The scientist uh, develops a way to basically uh, transfer uh, minds into other bodies. Like he can swap the minds between bodies. Uh, However, what happens is, is the guy who's kind of funding all this pulls out his money and just... Pisses off Boris Karloff and uh, yeah, he goes mad. He becomes another mad scientist, if you will. Uh, this movie is also known as The Man Who Lived Again, and that's actually how I found it, uh, even though the original title is The Man Who Changed His Mind. But uh, when I looked for it on uh, Roku, it came up as The Man Who Lived Again. Um, only other production known on this one before I get into my review, I guess. Uh, the main actress, uh, Anna Lee, who played the main girl, uh, she was actually married to the director at the time. Uh, I think they divorced, you know, the ne- in the next decade. I think they divorced in the 40s or whatever. But, uh, yeah, he, she was you know married to a director, so that's kind of how, I guess, uh, she got the role here. But she does good. I mean, I'm not trying to knock her. She she does really good here. Um, I'll tell you right now, Boris Karloff is just so fucking amazing. And I'm going to even say, even though I guess he's been, he's considered an icon and a legend, I think it's a shame we don't talk about him as much today. Because I think, you know, if you go back, you know... 30, 40, 50 years, you know, people probably talk more about Karloff, you know, than ever, you know, because he is. He's flat out just a fucking legend. But, uh, I think today we kind of forget about these uh, long-lost heroes of horror. Uh, the guy was just a great actor. And that's, and that thing is, I think, even in movies that maybe weren't as great. And I'm not saying this one. This one, I, I really dug the story here. I like the, you know, the movie here. Uh, but I think even in movies I've seen him in where maybe the story wasn't that good. Uh, for me personally, I didn't care for The black, black Room. I thought he did great in it. And it, again, uh, there's not one bad performance from this man at all this year. And he's in like two or three of these films uh, from 1936. Like the guy was, he was a fucking worker, man. Um, again, you know, kind of a generic story. I will say this movie did... Like, you knew, especially in this era, because we don't start letting the bad guys kind of win or anything until much later. We're talking, you know, late 60s and then definitely in the 70s, you start letting the villains come out on top. So you know the you know the bad guy's going to get his comeuppance. And, you know, even though you kind of sympathize with Boris Karloff here, because, again, he is brilliant, and they rush him, you know, again, because they want to put on a, because, you know, they're, they're, they're the money people, and they're like, hey, you got to put on a display. you got to show us why we're giving you this money. And he tells them, like, hey, it's too early for, you know, doing these kind of, you know, trials or whatever. They force his hand, it fucks up, and then guess what? They're getting mad, and they're like, ah, you're crazy, and they, you know, withdraw his funding. So you do feel bad for Karloff. However, he is the villain. Like, he eventually goes crazy, decides he's going to get his vengeance. You know, he ends up killing the guy who, you know, took the money from him and everything. Um... And in the end, because he kind of, you know, the assistant, the only one who kind of believed in him, even though she knows what he's doing is wrong, she does still believe in his uh, ability and skill. And I don't know if he necessarily falls in love with her. I think he just more or less, he falls for the fact that there's somebody else in this world who has his vision and his passion. And so he decides he's going to swap places with her fiancé. I can't remember if it's his fiancé or her husband. I think it's his fiancé. But he's going to trade places, and he does momentarily. But when I'm watching this, I'm thinking like, okay, I know he's not going to get away with it, but fuck, how's he, you know, he's got to get you know, he's going to do it. Like, it looks for a minute, like, yeah, he's going to get away with this. Like, he just switched places with, and I think if this movie would have been made later, they probably would have done the story like that where, you know, you think they get it in time, but then it turns out, nope, he swapped places. Uh, however, uh, the assistant, she knows what she's doing, so she's able to uh, incapacitate both and, you know, switch him back or whatever. Um... Uh, No, just really good performance by Boris Karloff. Uh, Again, I'm going to tell you right now if you are a fan of horror, and I don't care if you do look down these older movies or whatever, you need to study Karloff. Like, the guy is just a brilliant fucking actor. So, uh, this movie uh, has a 6.6 on uh, IMDb. And uh, yeah, no, earned it. Earned every every bit of that. Taking a drink. I'm so unprofessional when I do this show. It's ridiculous. All right. Uh, so, at number uh, that was number seven, The Man Who Changed His Mind. I read the title. Again, I don't know most of these movies before I watch them. And so, I literally had no idea, like, anything about this movie. So, when I start- heard the title, The Man Who Changed His Mind, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, is that like an indecisive guy? Like, that's his whole thing. So it's like, I can't decide. I had no idea. They meant literally. But, anyways, good movie. Moving on now. Uh, Number six, Le Golem. Uh, This is Czechoslovakia. Slovakian. I can never say that. Uh, Of course, we know the story of the Golem. Uh, This rabbi creates uh, the Golem out of clay, and uh, it comes alive to protect the uh, Jewish people of Prague who were being persecuted at the time. Uh, This is also known as the Man of Stone, and that's actually, again, that's the title I saw it under when I watched it. Um, So this thing... uh, Kind of interesting to note here, uh, this thing was released uh, on two different versions for, uh, now you remember, this is the 19, uh, well, this is actually when this happened, was more in the 40s, but uh, it was released in 8mm and 16mm films, film reels, for home watching. So, like, back in the 40s, if you had a projector at your home, this is, like, the first, like, horror film, or one of the first horror films to have, like, an at-home uh, release. So, yeah, years before VHS made it popular, uh, this uh, little Czech film uh, was one of the first ones. And I think it was a, a condensed version of it. I think it, it released like a shorter version of it. But still, yeah, that's still pretty cool. Uh, this is a, I don't know if you want to call it, I've read it in two different ways. Some people say it's a sequel to the uh, 1920 version, 20s. I think it was 26, wasn't it? no, 20, it was actually 20, uh, version of the Gollum. Some people say it's a remake. Uh, I don't know. I think it's more of a remake than anything else. However, I mean, I don't know. I guess it could be a a sequel. Uh, Because, again, we don't actually see the uh, Gollum being created. We find it, like, in a storage somewhere. So I guess it's very possible that after the events of the first movie, they go ahead and get it and move it over. But... Again, I guess they were doing this shit because I, I, I complain about horror movies today with the prequels or sequels having the exact same title as the original. You know, we did the thing with The Thing and Halloween, and it's like, fuck you guys, come up with a unique title instead of just trying to pass it out. Uh, but they were doing it back in their 30s too, so I guess we can't really you know, talk shit about it or whatever. Uh, this thing came out with some, some some good reviews actually uh, when it came out. Um, me personally, I enjoyed it. Um, but it does start off so excruciatingly slow. Uh, in fact, there's no golem to be had until like the last like 15 minutes or so, like an hour goes by this film with nothing hardly. Uh, but what I will say is, and it, it's kind of unique. It's a little look into the times, I guess. Uh, cause this is a co-production. I, I, you know, I said check, but, um, this is actually funded by, uh, the French, I believe. um, but look at the times. And so you're seeing these Jewish people really... Because, I mean, even though that was kind of the theme of the first golem of the Jewish people, uh, not necessarily the people themselves, but just that neighborhood was being kind of attacked. Uh, and, you know, the golem was created to protect them. But here it just feels so much darker just because we are during the era of World War II in the Nazi regime. And so it does kind of give it a different layer of a subtext here. Not even subtext, it's just text at this point going over top of it. Um, so you're seeing that, and I think that kind of adds to this. Uh, however, like I said, the movie itself, it plays more melodramatic than anything else. However, what I do like is the villain, and I don't remember names or anything like that. I apologize. Uh, but the main bad guy here, you know, they give him moments where even... They try to. I don't know if they're trying to him synthetic. I guess they kind of are, but it's almost like you know, he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he also feels like the reason he's doing it is right. He's conflicted, and I don't know. I, I, I like the fact that they try to give him a little bit more layer than just you know, I'm just evil for the sake of being evil. Like no, he, he's a he's a person. Uh, and I feel like a lot of characters in here are really well written, uh, but I'll be honest with you, this movie drags on until until. Uh, it's all looking bleak. They got the they got the Jewish revolution squashed. Most of them are in prison, uh, about to be executed, and uh, the young girl, uh, the uh, she's the girlfriend of the leader of the ex of the uh, revolution. Uh, she ends up saying the magic words and bringing the golem to life. And this motherfucker goes on a rampage, and it is awesome. Uh, he's breaking through walls and in the dungeon where they have the Jewish people held. It's right next to this lion uh, enclosure, and presumably, I guess they throw them into the lion pit. You know, we used to have the Christians back in the day, so I guess you know the Jews are getting theirs in this movie. But they would—they uh, had this like lion caged off the area, and so we get the scene where like you know the dude breaks through the you know the lion wall. The lions get out, but they like bypass the Jews and go right. It's almost like they knew like who the bad guys were, and they go right after the people. And I'm not sure who these uh, other people are supposed to be. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not even sure who, like, Prague, like, who are the, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, again, not good with my uh, history or uh, geography, for that matter. Uh, I'm an ignorant American. Sorry, guys. But, uh, so I'm not sure if you I don't think you are supposed to be Germans, though. I think it, you know, it takes place a little bit uh, further back than that. But either way, these lions just start, ma- and you actually see it now. I'm sure they were trained some sort. I mean, they clearly weren't just, like, letting loose lines, but I mean, it's real lions and real people, and you see the lions, like, jumping on them, and you like, getting mauled and shit, so, I mean, it looks really cool, uh, again, the golem just, you know, starts going through them, uh, come up and seems great, because you got this one guy who, uh, was Jewish, but he kind of, like, turned on his own people and joins the, you know, the the bad guys, and the, the main leader, he's this fat fuck, and he's just, like, he's cheating on his wife with, like, these three girls at once, and the night of the execution, he's just partying, throwing a big celebration, and, of course, the Gollum busts that shit up, and he kills everyone. Like, throws one dude out the fucking window. It's, it's awesome. Uh, I will say, like I said, uh, compared to the first one, or I guess not the first one, but the, the, the last Gollum movie, uh, th- this one definitely amps up the action, amps up the destruction, the mayhem in the end. And for that alone, uh, i got to say, this is probably my favorite Gollum movie thus far. Uh, but it really is just that last, you know, 15 minutes or so uh, leading up to it. It can be a bit of a snooze fest, but if you're going to watch it, stick with it. That's all I can say. Uh, This thing has a uh, 6.3 on IMDb and uh, yeah, yeah, seems about right. So uh, yeah, I I, I enjoyed it. Uh, That was Le Golem. So going on to number five, we have the invisible Ray. American. American. Finally, getting had all these foreign films, and guess what? We're going to round it all off with American movies. We're back in America. Uh, this is uh, this guy a scientist. He uh, discovers a brand new uh, element called Radium X. Uh, however, uh, it, you know he gets infected by, it, gets exposed to it, and it turns him into you guess it a mad scientist. Uh, so originally. Uh, so this is, a, this is a, another pairing of Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, and it's fucking awesome. Uh, this is really originally supposed to be Bluebeard, however, the pirate, and uh, Karloff was going to play Bl- Bluebeard. I'm not sure who you know Lugosi was going to play, but either way, it was supposed to be that movie. And for whatever reason, I haven't discovered uh, why yet. I didn't read why. Uh, or couldn't find why, but Bluebeard just didn't happen for whatever reason. So basically, uh, they got together and decided, okay, we got to get another movie with these guys in it. And so they came up with the Invisible Ray, and that's where you know they end up, you know, going to. Uh, they were trying to rush this, and it turns out uh, at the time Universal was going through um, a studio change. Like the head of the studio was switching over. Uh, we'll talk more about that a little bit later on. Uh, but uh, they're hurry up, try and get as much stuff. You know, pass before the sale or before uh, the takeover. And so this thing was getting rushed crazy. Um, turned out, uh, so the original director, and I forget who they got to uh, try direct it first, he quit. He was just like, nope, uh, they're trying to make it too quick, and I don't want to do that. So uh, he walked off the set, uh, and they went up uh, replacing him with, uh, I think the guy's name was like Lambert Hillier, if I'm not mistaken, taking a drink. mouth gets dry the older I guess where Uh, so anyways so they replaced him with Lambert Hillier but the funny thing about that was this movie ended up going over budget and over scheduled anyways like crazy like and so I I don't want to say it was the most expensive movie they'd done at this point but it was close to it Uh, And they weren't, you know, anticipating it to be. So, I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny anyway. But either way, uh, when this thing came out, it did get, you know, good reviews uh, regardless. So, they had that going for it. Uh, Some uh, production notes here. We got uh, the cathedral that was used in the uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame that Universal did was reused here as the church in this movie. Uh, Of course, uh, there's a famous story about Boris Karloff being pranked on the uh, set of this movie. Uh, basically, they had this uh, the scene where um, he's being lowered into the uh, volcano pit to extract this uh, radium X, and uh, of course they put him in this lift. They lift him all the way up to the top, and then they fucking go to break. And there's like, eh. And so anyway, they left him up there during lunch, and so uh, it turned out he was very. Uh, he thought it was very funny. He you know he he got the rib. He was okay with it. No hard feelings. Uh, but. Some sources say that, uh, the actor Francis Drake, uh, who plays, uh, kind of the main character in here, aside from Karloff and the ghost, he's like a third, if you will. Uh, they always have, like, that extra guy who's just, like, the love interest who just comes off boring as fuck. That's this guy. Uh, apparently he didn't think it was too funny, though. He was the one of them that was kind of pissed about it. But, again, Karloff kind of laughed it off. It's one of those things where it's like, I don't know. It's a dick move. Especially someone that prestigious. Like, at this point, too, it's like, Boris Karloff's the fucking man But at the same time, it's like, ah, you know, if that's something they just did, you know, as long as he's cool with it and laughed it off, hey, no hard feelings right there. Uh, Speaking of that scene where they lower him into the uh, volcano pits, that would actually get reused in uh, The Phantom Creeps uh, with Lugosi. And they just basically swapped it out, so it looks like, you know, in that movie, even though it's Karloff being lowered into the volcanoes, they pretend like it's Lugosi for that movie, so... Kind of unique that, you know, these two guys will always be connected, and that's this is another connection right there. It's like, yep, Legosi. Technically, Karloff stood in for Legosi for that scene, so kind of neat. And then, of course, we mentioned the cathedral earlier, earlier being reused. Uh, the lab in this movie was used for, uh, this year, actually, the 1936, It was used twice again, uh, once in uh, Flash Gordon and another in uh, Dracula's Daughter. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this movie, I absolutely loved. Uh, this kind of combines a couple of the genres, or subgenres of horror, if you will. Uh, not only did it have the mad scientist, you know, trope. Uh, it also had the terror in the tropics, you know, element. You know, we're deep in the jungles here. And, I don't know, again, I think the story's really good, even though it's very predictable. And, again, it's going by the formula. It's still a good story, and honestly, Karloff and Lugosi are awesomeness. Uh, So that's the thing, too. Uh, Even though when they first started doing these movies, uh, pairing, they always, for the most part, I think maybe once, Lugosi got top billing, but for the most part, they always gave top billing to Karloff, but it seems like, especially right now, they keep swapping villain and hero each time. You know, good guy, bad guy, they kind of swap them around. And uh, Lugosi, who I rarely saw as a good guy in movies. like I I see more Karloff, I guess as a good guy in movies than uh, Legosi, But we saw him as the good guy in, a, what was it, a Black Cat? And uh, again here uh, in The Visible Ray. And I think he does really good as kind of the good guy. And I think because of his accent, people kind of blow him off as not being that given actor. And I don't think that's fair, especially when you see this movie. I feel like, you know, he, he, he had a good performance in Black Cat, but I think he's Definitely really good in this. I think if I, as far as like a good guy goes, he does his best work here. I don't know. I thought Lugosi did really good as well. Uh, again, two icons, two legends, and it's just kind of a shame that the studio was definitely favoring Karloff over Lugosi. Uh, now, I don't know. Uh, from the stories I'm hearing, it seemed like Lugosi, even though they were treating him unfairly, he didn't want to play ball. Like, a lot of time, they would you know offer him. they they try to low ball him, and he'd be like, I'm taking my ball, I'm going home. And it's like, well, bro, that's why they're not picking you up on the second, third, fourth movie or whatever and it's going to be harder to even get work after that. So, I kind of feel like, I don't know, he may have had a bit of an attitude whereas Karloff, from everything I've read, it seemed like he was more grateful. Like, Lugosi had this chip on his shoulder, he's like, I was a Hungarian, you know, stage actor and I was a leading man and kind of a sex symbol over there and I deserve to be that over here and he got stuck in horror. Karloff who by the time he even got famous, he was already like in his thirties or forties. Like he was kind of a late bloomer. He was just grateful and he didn't care that he was typecast in horror. He was just like, Hey, I'm working. That's great. And I feel like it's the attitude that really separates the two. And I think that was probably the leading factor. I could be wrong. That's just my own opinion. I'm just saying that's how I look at this, but this movie was really good. And it had that other element of, and I don't even know what you call this. I mean, I guess revenge. It's a revenge film, uh, even though it's kind of unwarranted revenge in this in this case. But, you know, when Karloff, uh, you know, he loses his wife. Uh, he loses, you know, his science and his credibility and all that shit. Uh, he, you know, the expedition. And he decides, you know, he goes after... Cause at this point, because uh, the radiation, not only is it making him glow, and he has a killer touch to him, he's also going insane as well. And so... You know he sees these seven statues and he's like, or was it five? I can't. It's five or seven. He's like, you know, there were seven of us on that expedition, and now, you know, the you know, as I destroy these uh, statues, I too will destroy, you know, the people on this expedition. And he does. He goes through them one by one, and it reminds me a lot of like uh, Doctor Fives, uh, the Abominable Doctor Fives, or Doctor Fives Rises Again. Uh, either way, either one of those. I I like that. So I don't know. I really dug this movie. Uh, I mean, I'm not one to go against the Academy. You know, we are all in this together. That's the you know whole point of this is it's a group effort. We're collaborating. We're, you know, I'm just kind of the spokesman of this, of this group. I would have had this probably be my number one. Just saying. It, it probably, this probably would have been my number one movie of 1936. Uh, I respect what becomes number one. And I think in the mainstream, what ends up being number one is probably the right choice. I'm just saying from a personal aspect, The Invisible Ray was way better than I thought it would be. And I feel like it does not get... I feel like a lot of these old movies don't get the credibility they deserve. Or the credit, I guess I should say, they deserve. And I, I really think that's kind of the point of doing the show is to shine a light on these older films. Uh, so, yeah, if you get a chance, you can find this on Roku as well. The Invisible Ray. Check it out. Uh, this thing has a, a 6.5 on a IMDb and has a 67% on a Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, both of those seem very low to me, but uh, hey, it is what it is. Uh, so the Invisible Ray is number five. At number four, we have The Walking Dead, uh, another American film. This is about a uh, Boris Karloff again. He plays a um, ex-con, and uh, he gets he ends up getting framed for murder. And he's innocent, like he you know didn't do anything you know to deserve it. Uh, and he gets brought back from the dead uh, after they execute him by the scientists. And some shit goes down. Uh, so uh, this movie they said was uh, when they wrote it, that I guess the guy who wrote the screenplay pretty much beat by beat stole a lot of the uh, not the story but the beats from Frankenstein. Uh, in fact. The character when he gets, uh, uh, the Boris Karloff played, when he gets brought back from the dead, he had no speaking role at all. Like, he was, you know, that's the one thing he lost in the transition. However, Boris Karloff's like, yeah, this is too close to Frankenstein. Like, you want me to be Frankenstein here, and that's not Frankenstein. And so they actually end up writing him in some line, I think it was the right choice. Um, but you, there's even a line in here where when they bring him back to life, the guy who brings him back to life is like, he's alive. And it's just like, and that's all I could think of. It's like, I didn't, I didn't even know. When I watched this, you know, I get my notes after I watched the movie, and I'm just like, holy shit, like, this is very reminiscent of Frankenstein, and when I read that, I was like, well, there you go, that's exactly it. Uh, this one, surprisingly, did not get any good reviews uh, when it came out. Like This kind of got crapped on, uh, which I do not get at all. Uh, time for my little review of this. Uh, much like The Invisible Ray, and, uh, well, hell, even kind of going back, uh to the man, change his mind. It really did remind me a lot of you know those uh, uh, early uh, you know mad scientist type films. Again, falls the same formula, but I, don't, I enjoyed this one. And this one again, this is one of those where you know Karloff, you know he is innocent, and but he has this power, and like because when he gets brought back, something supernatural tells him who framed him, who set him up, and he ends up going after them, and they end up dying, but. In weird, you know, accidental ways. But it's clear that he's kind of causing it. Um, I thought this was really good. I was honestly surprised that uh, this got such, you know, shit talked about it back then. Um, But, you know, hey, it is what it is. I really enjoyed it. I thought this movie was really good. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, The Walking Dead. Not to be confused with the uh, zombie TV series. Nope. They had the title first back in 36. So uh, this thing had a 6.6 on IMDb and it grossed uh, $300,000, which I'm not sure if that's good or bad for 1936 money, but either way, uh, it is what it is. So yeah, The Walking Dead, number four. So that brings us now to our number three movie, winner of the Bronze Skull Award. I'm talking about The Devil Doll. Uh, movie is about, uh, this guy who's, uh, ex-con. Uh, of course he is, uh, innocent, much like Karloff in the last movie. And, uh, he comes out and, uh, he's trying to get revenge on the people who put him away. And he does it through little tiny humans that, uh, this scientist, uh, co-convict, I don't know what you call that, but the guy who's in the jail with him, Uh, creates so uh, yeah he's using these little miniatures to go around killing the people who uh, put him away Uh, so this thing when it came out uh, also was not a financial success which was crazy to think about but the reviews were split and I noticed that even today like the reviews at the time were split and now it's kind of the same and it's just like I, I don't get that uh, the people who did like it, the one thing that they all kind of agree on is A, uh, Lionel Barrymore's performance, uh, was top notch, and B, the special effects are great. And I gotta tell you right now, that is the one thing I really dug was the special effects. Uh, I'm not saying like they're cutting edge or like that, but for the time, yeah, they were. And they actually look good and they hold up to a certain degree. I would much rather see effects done like this than CGI in, in all reality. It looks that good. Now, again, you can kind of tell, you know, it's a screen, you know, they, they, they're laying one shot over another to give the impression that these, you know, little people are tiny or whatever. But, uh, no, uh, I think it looks great. And I think, honestly, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know, I, I think it's way better than CGI. I, I, I'll say that. Uh, Lionel Barrymore does, you know, phenomenal here. Uh, Again, this one kind of goes, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely horror in it. I won't say there's not, because there clearly is. But, again, it, they, they focus more on the character here. And they literally do, uh, it's definitely more of like a, a character study, a drama, if you will. Uh, and Because not only is he just a man who's been wrongly uh, accused, it's, that's not his driving reason. His driving reason is because his name was dragged through the mud that his daughter hates him. Because of this whole thing, it forced his wife uh, to commit suicide. And so the daughter blames him. And the daughter's working like two jobs. And they're not good. Like one's at a laundromat and the other one, she's working like a... I think she's... I, I think they're kind of dancing around. they trying to say it's like a gentleman's club kind of thing. Uh, they didn't come out and say she was a stripper. But, you know, I don't know if she's just a waitress there or what. But she's not happy with it. And she blames him for everything. And so he's got more motivation than just that. Whereas the guy who break he breaks out with... He's just a mad scientist through and through. Like, it is just kind of like a... Uh, he's stereotypical. He's just like, I'm going to make the whole world tiny. His plan That's his plan. He's going to make the whole world small, but leave everything else big. That way, our food supply could last forever. I don't know. It's wacky as shit. And what's even wackier is, like, he somehow talked his wife into being just as crazy as him. Because what happens is when the old man uh, gets out, he dies. Like, he's just old age gets his heart too excited, goes down. Uh, and so he talks Lionel Barrymore, or the wife does, talks him into carrying it on. He only wants to carry it on just so he can use these little miniature. That's why he's doing it. I, you know, what happens is, and they do yada yada over the science, but they shrink people down. But the thing is, their brains are so small that it just makes them brainless. But somehow you can psychically control the little people with your own mind. Again, they don't explain how that's even possible. They yada yada over it, but whatever. We're going along with it. So they use it as a front, um, Lionel Barrymore and the wife. I should mention the wife, too. Uh, they said that when they made the movie, they based uh, her character on two pre-existing horror icons. Uh, Igor from Frankenstein, the Hunchback Assistant, and the Bride of Frankenstein. And so, the act- I forget the actress's name, but uh, Melita, I think is what... the. Uh, or the character name is, she has a slight uh, hunch when she walks, and then she has this uh, white streak in her hair. She looks iconic as fuck. And how like that character didn't live on is kind of beyond me. I guess because this movie bombed and was splitting audiences, it just got forgotten. But anyways, um, no, she I think deserves to be up there in you know that list of great uh, horror uh, characters from this time period. Uh, but anyway, so yeah. Uh, you know, he's just wanting to use these little people, uh, and they pretend that these are toys. Is what they pretend it is, and so everybody thinks these are like you know toys that are voice operated. Like you can control them with your voice or whatever, and so he's using that to infiltrate and attack each of these people, and it, it's working. Uh, this thing, you know, again, this is kind of a precursor, I guess, even to like tiny horror films like uh, Puppet Master or Terror Toys or whatever Full Moon Toy, you know, dolls uh, Dollman, all those, This seems to be a precursor to that, like, you know, I'm not saying we wouldn't have those, without this film, but, you gotta think they drew some inspiration from it, uh, and it really is, like, it, it, it's, it's oh, so good, um, yeah, I, I think right now, I, I'm a big fan of this movie as well, I think this is, uh, definitely needs to be more talked about, um, honestly, this could have been number one, honestly, and I wouldn't have argued as much, uh, cause I think it's actually better than what winds up being number one, um, Again, it kind of steps away from the horror because usually in these horror films, when you have even if the mad scientist is killing for a just reason, usually he'll get his in the end because it's almost like you shouldn't be playing God or whatever, and that's your punishment. Uh, but here we actually get kind of a uh, he, he makes it through uh, because you know he ends up having to accidentally kill uh, Melita because she goes crazy when she finds out that he wants to just leave and the lab blows up and she dies in the fire and of course uh they assumed that she was the one that was doing all this and so they kind of pin it on her and uh, her husband and so his name's clear however they're gonna you know he knows they're gonna ask him like well, where's you at during all this and why didn't you step forward and blah 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 it's because he was killing everybody and so what happens is, is when his name's cleared the daughter forgives him but unfortunately he can't be with her And so, but he does get that final goodbye with her and everything is kind of good between them, but then he has to disappear. And so it does end very bittersweet. Uh, Yeah, I I can't say enough good things about this movie. Another one I really think people should check out. uh, It's got 7.0 on uh, IMDb and a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, I don't know. Uh, But still, The Devil Doll, winner of the Bronze Skull Award, number three. So now we move on to, god damn it, we move on to number two. The winner of the Silver Skull Award, Revolt of the Zombies. About a group of, uh, not an American film, but it's a group of people who have to go into Cambodia, oh, excuse me, has to go into Cambodia to uh, destroy uh, the work of the scientist who's been turning men into zombies. Uh, so this is kind of the uncredited sequel to White Zombie. Uh, so apparently what happened was they decided to make a sequel to White Zombie and call it Revolted Zombies. However, certain producers, I guess the ones who were definitely, like the, the ones who were actually financing the movie, uh, decided to sue because they were like, because the, the you know, White Zombie was financially successful. Like, it did really well. And they decided like, nope, uh, you, we own the word zombie, which is so crazy to think about today, but I guess back then they are like, oh yeah, you, you, know, you can't do that. And so... They were trying to hold up production of this thing. Uh, they would eventually kind of settle. They had to pay him some money. and uh, But they couldn't say this was a sequel to it. So even though it is, it's also not. Uh, and so that was kind of, you know... That was the whole thing there. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It's funny. I didn't realize this was a, supposed to be a sequel to White Zombie. I thought it was almost a prequel to uh, King of the Zombies uh, from the 40s. Uh, or I guess not a prequel, but the first movie. I thought uh, King of the Zombies was a sequel to this. Uh, I don't know why I thought that. I mean, they're very similar, I guess, in story and formula. Uh and I really like King Zombie. Well, I guess we'll get into that when we get to 40s, but uh Maitland Moreland, I just I'm a big fan of his. So uh anyways. Uh the weird thing about the zombies was uh Bell was initially announced to be a part of this movie, however, uh he just wasn't. And I guess as time went on, they just you know they quit mentioning him and then he wasn't the movie. He actually was in the movie but just his eyes so when they use the eyes from the white zombie they just use the same footage and so when you see these zombified eyes give the powers that's Lugosi's eyes but he's not credited in this movie uh how the hell did this get number two this is just I don't know boring this is a boring movie just flat out uh I guess this must have a soft spot in most of the academy's uh heart cause it, it got number two what the fuck uh, anyways, past all that, it is what it is, uh, personally, I don't hate this movie, it's just, it's so dull, it's just so, and again, I guess because when I watched it back in the day, I watched it after I watched King of the Zombies, I enjoyed King of the Zombies, King of the Zombies had a fun vibe to it, this one does no fun, it's just boring, and I wasn't the only one that thought so, it, it didn't even get close to either the critical, or Or the financial benefits of the first one. So it didn't hit any of those goals early on. Uh, In fact, this has a 3.4 on IMDb. That's right. The lowest ranked movie of 1936. And it's number two on our list. And it's got a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. So eat that. Uh, Yeah, Revolve the Zombies. Silver Skull winner. Number two horror film of 1936. I guess. So that brings us now to our number one uh, film Horror film of 1936. Winner of the Golden Skull Award. Uh, I'm talking about Dracula's Daughter. Uh, this is, of course, uh, an American film. Uh, so basically, Dracula's Daughter appears in London. And when shit starts going down, Van Helsing's like, well, she must be a vampire and I gotta take care of her. Uh, yeah, we talking about, you know, uh, Lambert Hillier, who did uh, The Invisible Ray earlier. Uh, he did this movie as well. Uh, so this was a uh, sequel to Dracula. A direct follow-up, uh, and even though I guess they weren't technically linked then, you know, later we would find out that you know all the Universal Monster movies were pretty much connected, as they would become connected later on. So it's a part of the Universal Monsterverse, not the Dark Universe, which was the shitty reboot thing they tried to do later on, but the original OG version uh, right here. So this was originally supposed to be supposed to be based on the short story for Dracula's Guest. And accounts differ on this, but basically, I guess, uh, someone bought the rights to the short story. Because what it was, the short story itself actually wasn't necessarily a short story. Uh, It was actually a chapter that was left out of Dracula. Like, Bram Stoker just took the chapter out. I guess he figured he didn't need it. And then later, after his death, it was published as its own short story. And you know this guy picked it up, uh, David Selznick, I think is the guy's name, David O. Selznick. Either way, he he snatches it up, and I think it's one of those things where he only did so, I'm guessing, because he honestly figured like, oh yeah, they said he wanted to make you know give it you know make his own movie of it or whatever. I think I think he's working for MGM at the time, and uh, he was wanting to you know do something with it. But some people are saying, well, he actually did that knowing that Universal would buy it up from him. And he ended up selling it for more than he bought it for, made a profit off of it, and then Universal got it. However, Universal just disregarded the whole thing and just basically made their own movie anyway. So again, I don't know, kind of a weird little thing that, you know, is what it is. Uh, This had to be Russian production as well. Lambert Hillier, man, getting in those uh, tight movies, I guess, or, you know, tight production spots. Uh, because that was the deal the contract was if it wasn't completed by a certain time the rights would revert back to MGM so they had to up him rush this into production as well uh, they originally wanted um, James Weld to direct it but he did not want to do uh, because he just came off of Bride of Frankenstein he didn't want to do back to back horror films uh, so he, he turned it down which I don't know I kind of wish he would have done it don't get me wrong, this is a good movie, uh, but it's just like, what if? What, what would have happened if he would have done it, you know? But I guess we will uh, never, never, you know, really know. Uh, this is originally uh, supposed to have uh, Bell Lugosi, Boris Karloff, and Colin Clive uh, bringing in all the heavyweight hitters in this movie, but for whatever reason, uh, they all just kind of didn't appear in this one. Uh, for, you know, again, for whatever reason. Uh, I am guess because Karloff was... James Wells boy maybe even Colin Clive as well so maybe they felt a sense of loyalty there and if he wasn't going to be in it they weren't going to be in it maybe Lugosi was just like I deserve more money because I know they actually put there's a uh, you see Dracula in his uh, coffin it's a wax dummy of Lugosi and I think he got paid for his you know likeness so it's like I don't know I mean, would it have been cheaper just to I don't know either way though none of them were in this thing um So I mentioned earlier that, you know, the censors won and that's kind of the end of horror. Well, that's not fully true. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. Yes, the uh, Hays Code was cracking down big time on these horror films. However, and if I'm getting these names mispronounced, I apologize. But the original, you know, head of uh, Universal, that Carl LeMay, LeMay, I'm going to say LeMay, uh, he he loved horror films. That was his thing, you know, dating back to, you know, Fan of the Opera, he saw big money in these things. And with Frankenstein Dracula, you know, boom, Universal Horror was born. However, when the studio finally uh, changed heads and it, you know, got bought out by, you know, this other company and, you know, they, they still ran it as Universal, but now, you know, there's a different guy in charge. That guy despised horror. And so this was kind of the last horror film to come out from them. And everyone else just kind of followed suit when they saw that Universal wasn't making them. It was almost like, ah, well, fuck it, you know. Everyone's cracking down on these things. There's no point in doing it. And that's kind of why this thing dies at death. Uh, Horror dies for three years after this. Or two years after this. Not until 1939 that we see another horror film. So we get two solid years of nothing. Which is so sad. But it is what it is right there. Uh, So this movie has split reviews. Um, You know, some people liked it. Some people didn't. Uh, Of course, it's constantly being compared to Dracula. funny thing is, Dracula is definitely more iconic. But as far as film goes, filmmaking in general this is definitely a much better movie. And that's kind of one thing that, you know, the the critics, you know, kind of split on. I guess most people felt like, well, this wasn't as good as Dracula because it didn't have Bela Lugosi, but they're like, it's a better made film. Uh, However, it did not make the money that Dracula made. And that may be another reason why uh, this movie didn't, you know, do great. However, they also agreed, though, that uh, Gloria Holden, who plays Dracula's daughter, uh, did great. Uh, Rumor has it she did not want to be in this movie. She also looked down on horror. Uh, but some people think that's why she does goodness in this, because, you know, she kind of has this attitude throughout, and of course, you know, the attitude is like, you know, she doesn't want to have the curse of being a vampire, uh, in reality, she just doesn't want to be in the movie, but either way, she took it and, you know, it worked with it. Uh, this movie has been very influential, uh, throughout history, or throughout, you know, the rest of horror, because, uh, you know, Anne Rice, you know, has often cited this as one of her biggest influences when she wrote, uh, her vampire movies, Uh, And then, some people have said that, you know, the, uh, obviously not the story, but kind of the structure of the story uh, is very close to, you know, the 1950s film, uh, Sunset Boulevard. So, it's like, you know, who knows, but, I mean, a lot of people have kind of pointed that out, so, and I've seen Sunset Boulevard, I was not a fan, I don't remember, being honest with you, so I really can't comment on that, but... I don't know. Enough film historians and critics are saying it, so there must be something there. Uh, and then, you know, finally uh, this would be remade in 1994, as uh, I may pronounce mispronounce this, Naja. And I also thought The Hunger, wasn't there like a vampire movie that had David Bowie in it? Am I making this up? I thought that was kind of based on this too. I could be wrong, but either way, you know, um, yeah. Uh, So, the only other kind of production that I can mention on this thing was, you know, we talk about subtext and themes and whatever. And, of course, you know, we've talked before that, you know, sometimes filmmakers don't even put those in there, but they come out. Well, this was the opposite, because there is a big lesbian theme that runs through this. However, that was not by accident. That was intentionally thrown in there. Uh, You know, they even though this is based on, or supposed to be based off of uh, the uh, Dracula's guest, you know, chapter or story or whatever uh, this is actually had a lot more in common with uh camellia if i'm pronouncing that right camellia uh which is you know the original lesbian vampire if you will uh and it had a lot you know uh similarities with that uh the production crew or sorry the uh, production code the haze code people they knew what was going on and they even said like listen if you're gonna make this movie you need to alter a lot of the scenes and so there's like scenes with, the, you know, record's daughter's uh, house guest, or sorry, uh, housemaid. And, you know, her, uh, you know, there's a scene where she's modeling, you know, the, the necklace for her or whatever. And she's supposed to be nude initially. And they're like, yeah, you can't do that. You and Because I don't think it would have shown anything. I think it would have been implied, you know. But they're like, you can't even imply, you know, you can't imply nothing here. And so they made him take out a lot of stuff there. But even when you take that stuff out, you know, the subtext is definitely still there. Uh, and the same goes uh, whenever, you know, she kidnaps the uh, main girl at the end and takes her back to, you know, Transylvania. Same thing, you know, it's clearly there's a lesbian lust there. From Dracula's daughter, but you know, again, all, you know, only in our imaginations and our fantasies, we cannot, you know, imply that at all. Uh, you know, I personally like this movie. I think it's, I, I think I'm in the group that thinks this is better than Dracula. Uh, again, not much horror; it's definitely more fantasy, or sorry, uh, more drama. Uh, but there, there's one scene in particular when they walk into the room and she's sitting in the bed and she's just looking right at you, and it's like it's the camera. It is the most chilling scene. In a universal horror film, like it it just it catches me off guard each time, and it just I don't know, it runs chills down my spine. Um, I really like this movie. Again, I don't know if I would have made it number one, but uh, it is a damn good movie. Uh, it's got a six point three on IMDb, a sixty four percent on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but no, nah, it is our number one horror film of nineteen thirty six. Winner of the Golden Skull. So, brief recap, if you will. Washington Irving and Warner Cross are both uh, inducted into the Horror Hall of Fame. And then at number 9, we had El Burro Macabro. At number 8, Farman Maria. At number 7, The Man Who Changed His Mind. Number 6, La Gollum. Number 5, The Invisible Ray. Number 4, The Walking Dead. Number 3, Winner of the Bronze Skull, The Devil Doll. At number 2, Winner of the Silver Skull, Revolt of the Zombies. And number one, winner of the Golden Skull, Dracula's Daughter. So, guys, that is it for 1936. Tune in next time. We will look at 1937, even though there's nothing going on there. But we will have inductions into the Hall of Fame. So, it will be a short episode, but, hey, we're still going to do it. So, you cannot keep a horror podcast down. So, uh, so anyways, until next time, uh, I've been Dane Orchison. This is the Retro Horror Academy, and you're dismissed.